Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with my lovely co-host Matt Offenbacher. How are you doing today, Ben? Good, it's good to be lovely. Ah, always, always. I mean, recap, we didn't get to watch the Astros this weekend, but you got to go see the, what's it called? Savannah Bananas. Savannah Bananas. Recap, how was it? It was great. It's like a fun, family-friendly thing. If y'all have seen the like TikTok or Twitter videos or whatever, it's just a family-friendly way to watch a baseball performance, if you will, pseudo-baseball, yeah. and have a lot of fun. That's cool. So, what was the highlight? When you look back, what was the favorite part? So like, you see all the stuff on all the dances and gimmicks they do, but one of the coolest things I thought was there was one of the players, you know, the sub-players in and out, but like one of the players just started like jogging down the concourse oh. and there was this army of kids chasing after him <laughs> and he would stop and high five them all and sign autographs and everything. Nice. And it was just that like really cool where it was like, they're just doing everything they can to embrace the fans and everything in a way where I was like, professional baseball should take notes. You know, right. I, I've just granted you can't have a player when they're done, like come out of the dugout, you know, hang out in the concourse. I understand why you wouldn't do that. Yeah. But at the same time, like just being available and realizing I am here to entertain you. Right. And like Brett Phillips, who's now with the Angels, but he was with Tampa last year. Like his whole thing is like baseball is fun. Yeah. And so like on Sunday games in Tampa, the kids run the bases. They do this in a lot of professional ballparks. Okay. He would run them with the kids. Oh, and nice. like he has a whole thing like, look, we're here to have a good time. He also like, you know, when you're losing by like 10 runs and they try and bring out like save an arm. So they bring out a position player. Yeah. He would come out and pitch and like talk all kinds of smack. And like there are great videos of, like somebody, you know, he'll throw like a 40 mile an hour lob and it'll go real wonky and catch it. It'll be like, like, so like, hey, man, you should be in the weight room if you want to hit that a little harder. Like just no realizing like, look, the people that are still here to watch me after all this. Yeah. They're here because they're fans of the game and I'm here to give them a product. Savannah Bananas, Brett Phillips, all the like, anyways, that was the one thing that struck me is like that sense of, I hope more professional baseball players are like, I'm here to entertain you. Yeah. Well, you bring up actually a really good point because baseball, I would kind of lump it in the same sort of class, not on quite the level as golf. It's a traditional, very much classy professional game. You don't have a ton of showboating. You don't hear about a bunch of them in the news. Like there's not real, and again, I know there is, but not to the degree of other sports as much personality, right? Like they're very much like business focused. And so I just wonder if to attract sort of a different either generation or even just different demographics that sort of urge for that kind of like all the fizzle and personality and kind of the stuff that's outside the box to make it a little more entertaining for the views and just to, to generate more traffic. Do you think it'll get there or do you think it's going to kind of remain very sort of classy? I think it's opening up a bit. I think a lot of it, honestly, is the Latin American players have done a great job. You know, not only do they bring a lot of that passion and emotion, yeah, but like, I can't remember if it was Dominican Republic or whatever, but the World Baseball Classic is going on right now. Ah. And there was one game where like everybody sitting behind home plate would call the pitches like in unison. So they'd like stick their arm out for a strike oh. and everything. You could tell like anybody who got a chance to go, I said like, it's just like one big party. Yeah. I think there's a lot of exciting things that I hope reach major league baseball, but 
if you're listening to this, you're probably on a long drive anyways. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll add, I went to the ALCS game two, and Luis Garcia, we sat right behind the bullpen, and Luis Garcia, who was clearly not pitching that night, you could tell who was by how like focused they were. Yeah. He's just like milling around the bullpen and like tapping guys on the other shoulder and like getting them to look over and just having like, fun. Kind of goofing off, singing along to Deep in the Heart of Texas and, and like uh, yeah. just having a good time. And it's like, you know, to see somebody that relaxed, even though it's like, man, we might make it to the World Series. No kidding. Granted, Hector Neris, another Astros pitcher, he was also having a really good time. Like, he went out and pitched. Like, it was mm. one of those where, like, oh, he's definitely not throwing tonight. But he was, like, goofing off with the fans who were sitting nearby and stuff like that. And it was like, wow. wait, he's warming up. No kidding. So, like, but these are all guys who I think there is an element of this is coming out. But I think a lot of it has had to come from the international game and, and some of these other folks who I think by rights are, like, excited to be there in the way where I can show my emotions as opposed to, like, stiff-necked because you're in a big game. Right. Well, I, w- I wonder how much of that, you know, because now technology and social media and creating a personal brand is big. You know, you guys, you have like the Apollo Media folks who are like really building the brand around Astros baseball. I wonder if any of that, because of, you know, the folks entering the league now or call it in their like late teens and 20s, they grew up in the era of kind of like social media. Like for me, I never got into it until after high school. And so, you know, when I was playing high school football, like I was not thinking of taking selfies of me after the game or, you know what I mean? Like there was none of that content creation around the game. I just wonder if any of that will continue to evolve and play a factor to attract more people. And I don't, do you know the level of attendance for games or the viewership? Like is MLB kind of like, where is that in the grand scheme? Do you know? So it's been better, but better from down. Major League Baseball, big picture, you know, so a lot of these regional sports networks are going bankrupt, including the AT&T Sportsnet, which, you know, for the Astros, you'd be like, why is that? And it's, well, a lot of these deals were negotiated and plug for Larry, the GM, great follow on Twitter. And he breaks it down with, I think it's Ben Dubose. I hate to get the name wrong, but they break down like, you know, a lot of this was back in the day when everybody bought cable and you had to pay 15 extra dollars for the Astros deal. Right. And now people don't have to. They have more choices. So these networks aren't getting as much viewership. And so it's like now that the people who weren't even watching the games aren't subsidizing it for the diehard fans, it's like, okay, these regional sports networks aren't getting the revenue that they were built around expecting to have. So there's a lot of shift there as media consumption has changed. Sure. That's a big deal, I think. That MLB, the reason they're introducing the pitch clock, like everybody says, oh yeah, you can be really frustrated, but the other part of it is this is going to appeal to more fans. If you know you can get out of a game in two and a half hours, most likely, you're more likely to go. Right. And granted, I have stayed for 18 inning games. Like, I'm not leaving. Yeah. But it's not for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And don't worry, folks, we're going to get talking about drilling fluid, so you can fast forward if you need to. But I'm very curious, Matt. Overall, what are your thoughts around the rule change? Because from what I understand, there's some pretty big rule changes, and then you know, the bags are bigger now. And, yeah. I mean, is it good for the game, good for the consumers? Where do you sit on that? So I think the pitch clock is necessary. Just like I hate it, but I accept it. I think that maybe they should add a few more seconds because also like the batter has to set up like everybody's making these adjustments. And I just worry that there's going to be like some strikeout that's going to be because somebody didn't get the box fast enough, like some pivotal moment Mm -hmm. where a game is going to end because of some technicality now. I get it. Yeah. And so like there's that there's the part where it's like a few years ago, the Astros had a pitcher named Wade Miley and Wade Miley was known for being quick to set up and everything. 
and the games were like 45 minutes shorter. Oh, wow. And it was sort of funny because I had to like make plans after the game if I was going to a game where he was starting. Like I was yeah. like, Wade Miley's pitching. I'll see you afterwards. Whereas otherwise, I'm like, no, I'm going home. It's going to be 1030, you know? And so it's like, well, if we just look at it that way, it could be great. Like I made different plans when I knew the game was going to be shorter. Yeah. I think there's something good there. So they're going to have extra runners and extra innings, which I think if you're already speeding up the game, why are you doing that? I think do one thing at a time. I think there's just too many changes at once. There's a pickoff rule where the pitcher can't try and throw the ball to first. Like it only turn back like twice, I think. So it's like, okay, so if they look back and then like throw the ball to first to keep somebody closer to the base to limit stealing, yeah, you only do that twice. Well, guess what? After the third, he's going. And the bases are bigger and that's supposed to limit injuries. I think that's a more of a player safety thing. Because a lot of people have been injured, like especially their hands and stuff, not necessarily as much collisions anymore. Is that why they wear those? Goofy That's why they wear gloves? the goofy mitt. But <laughs> okay. you know, Alex Bregman broke his finger yeah. in Game Six of the World Series. It's still a thing, but I thought it was to incentivize them to do more stealing because you well, have more. I think it's a little area. bit of both, but it's oh, okay. a player safety issue as well. Interesting. But okay. that's the thing is, so now you can't pick them off. It makes stealing a lot more. Like I think it fundamentally alters the game a bit much with all this other stuff going on. Yeah. So huh. those are all things that I was like, the pitch clock is the big one, and I wish they would have just done that and then seen what came of it. Yeah. But they also test a lot of this stuff down in the minors. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, the ban and the shift. That's a big thing as well. Right. It's like they are and they aren't. It just won't be everybody's in right field and there's nobody. It won't be as goofy, but it'll benefit some players. It'll probably increase scoring. It may affect ground ball pitchers because it takes more time to field a ball if you can't get closer to where the person's most likely to hit it. Mm. So it doesn't analytically appear to be like dramatic based on what happened in the minors, but it will change things. So that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, it is. Like you said, it it kind of reminds me of like ultimately the question is, will it make the game better or worse, right? And yeah. if you change all these things and it becomes better, it's like, well, what was it? And it's kind of like when we drill a well, if you change a bunch of things all at once, it's like, oh, was it the mud? Was it directional? Was it this? We yeah. changed everything all at once. Like, why couldn't we just make small step changes to see what brings the most value? Right. You know, again, comparing apples to oranges. But when you said, you know, we're changing too much all at once, it's like, oh, I've heard that before. Yeah. But yeah, tying it back to mud today, obviously, that's the point of why we're back on the mics. And again, I really appreciate this gentleman for reaching out over LinkedIn at the end of the episode. If you ever listen to Towards the end, you always hear me say, hey, if you have any good questions, you know, these are great ideas for a show, please reach out. And so we had a gentleman reach out and was asking about dewatering. And the question essentially was, what are the benefits of dewatering and why would you use that form of solids control over another? And so we'd like to unpack that a little bit, hopefully answer the question and help explain what dewatering is and why you would use that type of solids control. And so, you know, where we'll kick things off, Matt. So let's go ahead and do what we do best and first describe what is dewatering. So dewatering is used in a lot of different industries effectively to remove waste in sludge. So get the dirty stuff out and get clear liquid back. Mm. Like all good things oil field, we took something from a lot of other industries and used it to our benefit. And, you know, dewatering has been around a long time, but ultimately the goal is if you're drilling with a clear fluid, for example, or sometimes other fluids, we know solids limit ROP, right? We've talked about how that can affect performance and... The solution is dilution. However, if I can limit that by basically reducing my water usage by improving my solids control efficiency, we should consider that. With dewatering, how it works is you're effectively agglomerating fine solids into bigger solids so that they will work in your solids control equipment where without that treatment, they might pass right through. Right. To kind of add to that is 
let's think of a centrifuge, right? When you have ultra, ultra, ultra fine solids, a lot of times it's harder to remove them. So if, to your point, if you can make them bigger, think of even just on sim from a simply put, if you look at the shakers, well, obviously the bigger solids are going to be easier to remove and same with the centrifuge. One question, Matt, which again, I know the answer, but to kind of help give some a little more context in this case, you typically would use it because you said, oh, you would want to use it and then you get back clear fluid. So to be clear, this is used in an unweighted type environment. Is that correct? Yeah, usually. There are more elaborate setups where you could do some barrier recovery and then treat parts of the fluid streams once you've pulled it out. Like you can do that. And I guess that's the other thing we have to qualify here. We're going to talk about dewatering from the perspective of traditional kind of, I don't know if poor boy is the right word, but you can get pretty sophisticated with this stuff if you need to. Mm -hmm. Generally, most of our applications don't require that. And that's one of the reasons it's attractive is because it's relatively cheap. Right. I don't want us to think that this is totally comprehensive, but sure. for a lot of the types of things that we do at AES, it's as simple as get these solids kind of stuck to each other because we know they're going to separate more readily. You can make it a lot more complicated with a MUD system, but you also have to get the money back from that added complexity, right? Right. One of the first experiences I had with dewatering, and it was up in Canada, is we call it flock water drilling. Mm -hmm. And we would inject, or actually we'd have a tank off to the side and we'd add some polymer and it would, again, to the point where you'd have all your fluid coming back and it would coagulate all your solids. They would drop off to the bottom of the tank and then like an auger type deal would kind of remove it. Because they wanted to maintain as low as possible solids, basically have a zero solids and have a clear water to drill the top hole section because of ROP benefits there. And then another application we use it is actually since then I hadn't used it in years. And then all of a sudden we came up with, you know, the Interlight Recover, which is a form of dewatering, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive into some of the fundamentals and then we'll tell Let's you what's that. cool about Interlight Recover and some of these other knickknacks. Perfect. You know, so you've got these fine solids and what do we say about colloids, right? They're terrible for fluid properties. They increase your gels, they affect your fluid loss. And part of that is they're all generally the same charge. They're all generally negatively charged. And what do we know about magnets? Everything that's the same charge wants to repel one another. Mm -hmm. So they won't stick together. And so what we're trying to do to get them to stick together is we have to overcome those resistive charges or common charges. So there are in more elaborate, and this is what I encountered, like up in Canada, I saw it like, oh, he's a dewatering de expert. And it was like, I thought you just put polymer, like, <laughs> but it can get fairly elaborate where you might use a coagulant first to neutralize that negative charge and then a flocculant to tie everything together. Gotcha. Most of the stuff we use is doing something like a polyelectrolyte, which does both coagulate and flocculate. So gets it not only repulse it to stop repelling one another, but gets it to stick together and then bind it together with that flocculent polymer or flocculating effect. But there's like a gazillion different types of materials that will do this. And so like you'll have variations by molecular weight, residual charge, charge potential. There's a bunch of stuff to try and get that right. And even the fluid system that you're in, whether it's, let's say you've got a saturated salt versus a freshwater system, mm -hmm. those polymers want to behave differently. Think about PHPA and chlorides or some of these other things. Like, yeah. we already know some of these polymers behave a little different in different environments. So they work better than others, depending on some of these properties, which means you got to match the right polymer to the right application. Gotcha. And essentially, if we can get that to work, if we can get all that to happen, we can get these polymers to stick together. They're bigger. Stokes' law. We can get them to separate out more quickly. And so a lot of what this looks like for us is a polymer tank. A lot of the centrifuge setups actually come with a polymer tank. 
where you can put the polymer and then just inject it into the centrifuge. So as you're processing the fluid, you're introducing the flocculant right then and there, and it'll aid in separation. Other times you do have those more elaborate setups. Our friends to the north, especially in kind of the interclear type systems where you're drilling with calcium chloride or something like that, might have a more elaborate setup because calcium chloride is really tough because of all the cations. There's just some other things that can, or not tough, but like you got to know what you're doing and you got to be a little more sophisticated than us, us down south. But this can also be as poor boy as I've seen people just add some flocculent at the flow line or at the reserve pit. And all you're doing is getting this stuff to stick together. And instead of a centrifuge, which has very high gravity, you're saying the settling time instead of the gravitational force is what I'm going to accelerate in a reserve pit. So hopefully I have clearer fluid coming back at my suction if I've got a reserve pit. Yeah, that makes sense. And so when we talk about actually running this and from your parameters perspective, can you go into that? Because I think a lot of that is important for like the correct application, understanding a little deeper on what we're measuring and how we're doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, one, you want a homogenous fluid. So keep this stuff agitated when you're going to feed it into the centrifuge to be processed, you know, when you're going to dewater it, because if you let some of this stuff settle out, sure, it'll work on the accumulated solids at the bottom, but you're not going to do nearly as much if you're pulling from the top, that kind of thing. So you want the fluid to be, you know, properly agitated. The other thing is you want a properly hydrated polymer. So this is one where if you're using dry product, you got to have your timing right on the rig to make sure you get it prehydrated. Sometimes that can take a couple of hours. And in light of that, if you're using a dry sack material, you may want to keep that in mind as you go, that I need to be ready for this. I need to not only be ready, but re know when I need to be ready X hours in advance of what's actually going to happen. Mm -hmm. And like all things oil field, you'll do that and then everything will go pear-shaped or whatever. So <laughs> making your plans around those things. And then there's a lot of liquid polymers for that very reason. So the trick with Enerlite Recover was getting it to work in this direct emulsion at a high salinity and actually under a number of environments. The, the polymer is actually pretty impressive, but it was narrowing that down so that it would work in a number of environments. But we'd sell it as a liquid because we believe it helps with treatment efficiency. If you have an injection pump, you can just pull straight from that and run it in. So consistent feed rate. This is an interesting one. Like if you can get a progressive cavity pump to feed the fluid... If you've ever seen what comes out of your conventional pump, like it'll just like, brrr. and if you think about trying to get polymer to like mix properly with that and everything, that can be one issue. The other thing going through a, you know, conventional impeller is it can break the polymer, which is like a fragile long chain. You break down a little bit, which we don't want to do if we can avoid it. So you tend to have more success with a progressive cavity pump where you can adjust the feed rate, and really dial things in. Right. They're not everywhere. And I get that. Another thing that matters water temperature. So some of these reactions don't work as well when it's cold. Right. And like solid, like chlorides, hardness, pH. So some of these things don't work as well unless you lower the pH. Like you got to do some other things that generally would eliminate categories of products being very helpful for us in the drilling side. You know, if I want to keep the pH up to mitigate corrosion, I'd really like to find a product that will just work in that environment instead of lowering and raising the pH as a response to trying to keep solids out. Yeah. So it becomes a bit self-limiting if you don't select the right material. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess I hadn't really thought of it about water temperature too, which plays a role. So like, would you then have to control it if you were in extreme environments, the temperature? If it's really cold, treating? it doesn't work nearly as well. And this is true across the board for a lot of these chemistries. I mean, think those polymers, a lot of them are kind of wrapped up. And as they hydrate, they sort of spread out. Right. And cold water just 
they don't play nice. There are some dedicated dewatering units that actually have like heating lines to mm-hmm. warm up the fluid as it goes into treatment. Yeah, no, I could see that. So, I mean, the obvious question is OBM. That's one that in a lot of areas we're trying to drill with, you know, less than nine pounds, even drilling with essentially a slurry that has no rheology, this and that. And mainly because if you have anything more than that, you're going to lose returns. And so the obvious question is like, how come we haven't developed dewatering for oil-based mud to where we could just have a clear oil-based mud? Or is there something out there that does that? Or what do you know about that? So there are some systems out there. Dewatering might not be the right term because you're in oil-based mud, but there are some units I worked on one years ago got to see it in action. It's complicated though, because in the same way that oil-based mud mitigates corrosion because it's non-conductive, there's not really charge sites. So what you have to do is you have to water wet everything, then flocculate it. Interesting. I try and keep an eye on these things. I hadn't heard anything all that exciting lately. I think this has gotten where it's gotten, but you need like a skid unit to come out there along with maybe another centrifuge. You treat this stuff, centrifuge out all the solids, and it's to very temperature dependent. I can tell you that much, mm. at least the stuff I saw. It's quite an operation for a rig site application. That being said, the, where I saw them useful was because you're effectively phase separating out the mud. You're basically getting the solids out. You water wetted everything. So now you've got your clarified layer of oil and water and the crap you centrifuged out. But you could recover a lot of oil where it really made sense was like at a mud plant that was tank locked. So that was where you sort of got the scale and the units just sitting in one spot and you're just moving some hoses around. Sure. That was sort of where it worked. Everybody's like, can you find a way to dewater oil-based mud? And it's like, the stuff is out there. We've seen it, but you're probably not going to like the price relative to... Sure. That's sort of the conundrum is not that it can't be done, but it doesn't work the way you think it does. And I think that's why it didn't take off the way I think a lot of people had hoped. Right. It's, I would say surprising, but I would imagine in some point there will be an economically viable way to completely strip the solids out of oil-based mud to hopefully achieve that desired density or solids-free content. But at that point, you're also going to remove your clays, your gilsonites, right? I mean, you're essentially getting to a point where you're getting back to just the three-phase separation and then left with the diesel, which is not a bad thing, too, if you're, like you said, there's certain applications for that. But like an ongoing drilling application, you could kind of maybe hit it in spurts to get your low grabs as low as possible to essentially get your density as low as possible. So I could see that being beneficial. But with the way solids control efficiency is now and with shakers and centrifuges, and now instead of having just two shakers on a rig, a lot of times you might have four. The screen technology has gotten slightly better over time. I think we can achieve what we're trying to achieve without needing to like essentially dewater while drilling. Now, like you said, fluids management on the back end at a mud plant, different story, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say it depends on where you're at. Like the Northeast, solids are a nightmare. Utica cuttings are coffee grounds and Mm -hmm. dilution is, you know, we were talking the other day about a lot of engineers that go up there have to be ready for it. You can drill crazy fast. Yeah. You hear about people drilling over 10,000 feet in a day, especially the Marcellus. Like That's wild. But the formation lets you do it. It's not as difficult to drill, but you have to have some experience there and realize how fast everything goes. Because if you're making that much hole, good for you. But from a fluids perspective, it means you're bringing in that many solids. Yeah. It means you got to build volume. It means you got to treat at rates that you're not used to if you're drilling at 300 feet an hour. There, for example, I mean, you can see like when you run the PSDs across a pad, you can just see the mud quality 
like how it gets harmed. And so it's like, man, if we could come up with something that was, I mean, we've talked about electrophoresis and some of these other kind of cool technologies. And ultimately, yeah, they're either too slow or not cost effective enough or what have you. But like the industry is yearning for a cost effective solution for this. Yeah. But you are also right that in some areas, like the technology is advanced enough. You know, I remember when I was talking with the Derek folks and one of the things we talked about is the reason that most people's desanders and desilters on the rig never work is because shakers, the technology's gotten good enough that they pretty much hit those cut points yeah. pretty consistently. Anyways, that's all someday maybe. There's a lot of challenges to it. And kind of jumping back to the water-based stuff, it sounds really easy, but it's easy to execute. But think about if you over-treat with your polymer. You get too aggressive because you're excited about removing solids. Well... Now you have this residual polymer in your mud, which has viscosity, mm -hmm. which then limits your ROP. Yeah. And you start retaining more solids because it has viscosity. So it provides some suspension. Right. You got to keep an eye on this and dial There's these things in. It, yeah. And the people that have experience with it know to do that. But, you know, we've talked about it and I don't have the answer and I'm not trying to talk about everybody, but some of the solids control hands are lacking in West Texas, especially, but in, in other areas as well, where if they do a good job, they get promoted too quickly and they're not trained or they're not prepared to keep an eye on this kind of stuff. And so it kind of circles back to what can we do on the mud side to help out and keep an eye on things. Mm -hmm. So this has become something that as a mud engineer, you really want because of how much it limits your dilution and right. helps you on so many other fronts. But yeah, you've got to walk that line as I'm not a solids control hand, but I really need to help the one we've got. Yeah. And tying that into, you know, we as a mud company and, and as folks running mud, you always are trying to maximize the salt control efficiency. And so to answer your question to the listener out there who asked the question, I don't think it's necessary. So why is it beneficial? Well, A, it increases your salt control efficiency. I would just simply put, and then why would you use that instead of the other? I don't think it's a game of this or that. I think it's this and that. So it's a supplemental piece to the salt control equation if you will, that will essentially allow you to increase your solids control efficiency, like I just said. So again, that's simply put, obviously we elaborated some more. I think where it makes the most sense is if you're, you know, again, and then speaking in generalities, if you're unweighted and you're looking to have this lowest density and the lowest solids amount as possible, you then can dewater to essentially take out all the solids to where when you look at your suction pit, essentially you have a clear fluid to where you can maximize ROP, you're not holding a bunch of properties and you just strip everything and you literally just need a fluid in the hole to where you can clean the hole. And then you'll likely add sweeps. When you do that, then the dewatering will kick all that stuff out of there because you don't want it while you're drilling. You just want it to help kind of supplement clean the hole. So anyway, hopefully we answered the question. Matt, that's about all I can add to that. Anything else before we wrap it up? No, thank you for the question though. This is a good one, a topic we really hadn't covered. So yeah. No, that was a, that. really good. And again, for the folks out there, if there's something you'd like to add to that, or if you've come across some cool technology on the old base mud side that you feel is worth kind of covering or even mentioning, reach out to us on LinkedIn. We're both active on there quite a bit. You can reach out to us via email at the flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. Please remember to follow our LinkedIn page. We've got a lot of great content being put out there, as well as you know our website has a ton of information on there. So some of the products that we mentioned, there's a lot of good technical data online for that as well and our YouTube page. We've got a good library of technical topics on there and Matt and his team have done a good job on the visual aspect, actually showing what we do in the lab in some cases for certain things. So again, a lot of good content out there, a lot of stuff to learn from. If you have any questions, please reach out. Until next time, take care, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. 
And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.